Mortimer, episode 23. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. I normally wouldn't be the one introducing some type of radio show, but I do feel honored that I have been asked to be the spokesperson for this week's installment of Mortimer. Compelled by gravity, Mortimer's prodigious frame shot through the air like a cannonball arcing downward. A moment later, his howling shriek was silenced as the Atlantic engulfed her prey. The crew had run to the starboard side and looked over just in time to see the self-proclaimed captain disappear beneath the surface of the sea with a whoosh and a splash. A multitudinous flurry of bubbles rose to the surface from where he had plunged but Mortimer was nowhere to be seen. Water shot into his ears and up his nostrils, saturating his entire being with an unsanitary fish-laden wetness. Most irritatingly was the onslaught of the briny sea-tang which invaded Mortimer's bushy moustache, lapel and shoes. Worry numbed by liquid courage, Mortimer blew water out of his nostrils and flopped over, so that his belly was down, his eyes closed against the frigid water. He sank farther and farther down, not fearing his inevitable end, but rather wondering of the status of his pocket's contents. For after he had changed into his sailing uniform, he had transferred all of his items from his former outfit to the new, items of which Mortimer assumed were now tarnished with squalid sea cream. Busily absorbed in his thoughts, he did not notice the boat hook that had splashed into the foam. Mortimer peeked one eye open in time to see a body drop into the sea beside him. Through the density of the darkness, he could not make out the face. Suddenly, Mortimer became aware of the frightening lack of oxygen remaining in his lungs, and he jerked his legs fruitlessly as he continued to sink. His thoughts were beginning to dissolve into a salty froth that surrounded his sinking frame. Hook in hand, the man swam skillfully toward Mortimer and grabbed the waistband at Mortimer's hip. He attached the hook to Mortimer's trousers, and with surprising power, the hook yanked and began to pull Mortimer and the man to the surface. Gasping and coughing, Mortimer vomited water. His arms flapped about as he skipped across the surface of the sea. Relief entered his lungs with each burning inhalation. But one thing was for sure. Mortimer did not approve of the way he was being handled. For with the pressure of the hook pulling from his waist, his breeches were being yanked violently up into his groin and buttock. He endeavoured to protest. However, his breath was knocked out of him as his body slammed into the wall of the ship. With a grunt from above, he was slowly hoisted up and out of the water, up the side of the boat, and fully over the rail and onto the deck. 
Landing with a thump, he wriggled about, coughing, spluttering and pulling his breeches back into place. Wasting no time, gruff hands were upon his collar. They yanked Mortimer into an upright-seated position. A massive beast, E.B. And me, Mortimer belched. He rubbed his eyes with massive fists and tried to quell the nausea in his stomach. The hand was removed and Mortimer was allowed to flop back down onto the deck. He's a well-oiled cockeye. I say the bottle. Yeah, we're a thousand leaves below by now. Let me at him anyway. A filthy black-stained hand shot out toward Mortimer opposite from where he first stood. It appeared Mortimer was surrounded. He kicked his legs violently in an attempt to immobilize the encroacher. He'll have a face full of me boot, he will. Mortimer blinked in rapid succession, trying to focus on the strange faces about him. The deck did not gleam as it did before, and the dialect was even more offensive than that of his shipmates. Below decks he'll go, growled another. Leverage he'll be. Ow, he kicked eh? Release me, you pungent criminals! Inspired by the small victory, an incensed Mortimer began to flail more violently. Out of me way! Let me see our praise! A menacing voice bellowed loud enough to freeze them all in place. Mortimer found himself being lifted back upright by several of the crew. He gazed in the direction of the voice that had commanded silence in so few words. The crowd spread as two booted feet took several steps forward, a cane drumming the deck with each step. Then Mortimer saw him. Towering above the rest, this man was truly abhorrent to look at. Wearing torn leather boots that came up to his knees, his legs were clad in tattered black trousers. Broad shoulders were covered in a violet velvet coat, worn and torn from a life at sea. He gripped an intricately carved cane with a massive fist as his other hand was hidden. A wild black beard sprouted bountifully from his face and neck, and a tuft of matching black hair spilled out from his half-unbuttoned white linen shirt, worn beneath his coat. The leathered face was horribly scarred, like it had been in the mouth of a shark, and his cracked lips twisted up in a wicked sneer. His mangy black head of hair was covered by a black cocked hat, which boasted a pair of brown and white feathers. Hey, what are ye staring at? growled the man on Mortimer's right. Mortimer did not answer. He had been stunned into uncharacteristic silence. The man came closer, his cane vibrating the deck with each advancing step. Mortimer could now smell the pirate's fetid, tobacco-tinged breath. He stepped forward. Entering a shaft of moonlight, Mortimer noticed a weapon cloaked in black leather on the side opposite the cane. Before another word was said, an explosion sounded in the distance. Oh, they want to fight, do they? The repugnant pirate's attention at once diverted from his prisoner. Jackets off the cannons! He barked out the order with relish. And to his crew, tie him to the bow post! And raise the Jolly Roger. Dead men tell no tales. Her doom be at hand. Roar! Orange was more careful this time. He creeped around the cars, hid behind trees, and crawled through flower beds. He almost cried out as a thorn jabbed into his shoulder. He had crawled into a rose bush. Stupid bush! He reversed course. His destination was just two more houses away. 
He saw that the light had been turned out, but it was still too early for them to be in bed. Suspicious. This was all Carter's fault. He had spoiled everything. Orange was certain that the Albrights had heard them arguing earlier and had locked themselves away. On his hands and knees he scurried, soiling his trousers by water and mud from the gardens. Emily was going to kill him. Well, not if he cracked the case and received a promotion. He crawled a bit faster, remembering his conversation with Mrs. Albright in his head. He had lured her into a coffee shop under the guise of shopping for his wife. The town's gossip had been more than willing to sit around and chit-chat, drink coffee and eat cookies on his dollar, until he had brought up Sissy's real name. At that moment, Mrs. Albright's demeanour had changed completely. She'd all but admitted knowing the girl, and then run off as though she'd tipped her hand. Very suspicious. Orange counted his lucky stars that Mrs. Albright had such a terrible poker face, because while he was a committed detective, he wasn't very good at it. He'd been practising sleuthing since he was a kid, calling himself Orange and refusing to answer when his parents referred to him as Peter. But attention to detail had never been one of Orange's high points. While his parents had suggested, insisted, begged and pleaded for him to do something, anything other than joining the police force, Orange had never wanted to do anything else. He'd grown up on gumshoe books and had spent his days looking for clues and cracking made-up cases with his friends. Turns out, the real thing wasn't anything like his play fantasies. All the same, Orange didn't care if he wasn't a natural investigator. What he lacked in areas of quick wit and cleverness, he more than made up in heart, determination, and good old-fashioned spunk. He paused outside the Albright's residence and looked up at the windows. The house was silent and still. He pushed up on all fours into a standing position and looked over his shoulder for Clark's car. The street was asleep. No one was about. Ears trained for even the slightest sound, Orange moved to the side. Good thing the Albrights hadn't decided to get a watchdog. A vicious canine would have proved a deterrent from his nocturnal investigations, but as it stood, so long as the Albrights didn't hear him, he was safe. A flower-lined walkway led around the side of the house and Orange followed it. He stopped at a wood fence to listen. If the couple was on the back porch, they might hear the door but he heard nothing except the sound of his heart thudding in his chest, so Orange slowly engaged the latch. The door clicked open, and he pushed forward. He closed it behind him, looking about in the blackness. A small yellow light illuminated the backyard of the Albright property, which stretched out into a well-manicured lawn decorated by a veranda, rows of flower beds, with large coniferous trees lining the border. Orange stayed close to the house so as not to be caught in the glow as he moved in closer to the source. There was a sound of flowing water and then a clink of teacups. They were in the kitchen. Orange moved forward. He was close enough to hear them talking now. He strained his ears and crouched down to listen. How do we know what we're looking for? Mrs. Longhorn asked as they arrived at the second floor. Though her voice sounded bored, she was bubbling on the inside. First, the possibility of finding a clue as to the whereabouts of a daughter gave her insatiable hope. Second, she'd been dying to see the upstairs of the Iscariot mansion since the family had moved to town over twenty years ago. We shall assist Neville in determining if anything seems awry, her husband answered. Well, how should I know how he usually keeps his quarters? They stopped at the well-manicured door to the right, and Neville opened it with a key. Uh, do understand that the young master was in the middle of a 
he cleared his throat, project, so you may observe that things are somewhat in disarray. His words were severely understated. Neville switched on the light, illuminating the chaos. An involuntary gasp escaped Mrs. Longhorn's lips. While the essentials were breathtaking, the room looked like it had been the scene of a crime. Her eyes gleamed with interest. She admired the four-poster Moroccan bed with maroon satin comforter set. Her fashion-focused mind reeled upon spotting the massive mahogany desk, dresser and matching armoire that made up the furniture. Her breath caught in her throat as she looked down and saw the spacious and delicately woven rug covering the wooden floors. Much to her delight, there were double doors that led to a balcony that was framed by heavy curtains, and the art that decorated the walls were one-of-a-kind originals. More distracted by the chaos that covered the bed, desk, floors, dresser-tops, and every other nook and cranny, her husband did not share her appreciation for the room. "'What in God's name has he been doing in here?' he cried. She knew the look on his face. For her husband appreciated minimalism, decorum, simplicity, and essentialism. Any extravagance, indulgence, or mess, for that matter, made him simply crazy. He collects things that he finds and uses them to build miniature ships— "'But how many has he made?' "'Mrs. Longhorn lifted a bottle containing an intricately designed boat. "'Over a hundred, I do believe,' came the butler's answer. "'I don't know what we're looking for in all this mess. "'Lily could have found over a thousand things in here.' "'Mr. Longhorn's face flushed with frustration. "'This is a den of a lunatic.' "'Now, darling,' Mrs. Longhorn placed a hand on her husband's arm. There has to be a clue somewhere. The girl said she wasn't gone long. She she had to have been looking for something in particular. Do forgive my delay. Mrs. Dixon came into the bedroom. She'd finally tucked the mistress, Mrs. Iscariot, into bed, with Millie assisting by reciting her a bedtime story. Mrs. Peabody and her husband, on the other hand, had taken the car and were driving the interloping poodle to the pound downtown. Mrs. Dixon could not risk that mangy beast coming back and spreading disease and disgrace about her mansion. Uh, "'Mrs. Dixon,' Neville said, "'do you see anything out of place?' Every inch of the desk was covered with litter. There were piles upon piles of bottles, magazines, knick-knacks, and bottle ships strewn about the room. She flushed with embarrassment as the Longhorns observed the status of her squire's room. "'Well, I'm sure there is something,' Mrs. Dixon looked about desperately. "'Give me a moment.' "'Does he not throw anything away?' Mr. Longhorn could not contain his horror. "'He collects items when he's out he believes could be useful for his miniature constructions,' Neville offered with a shrug, "'though I do believe he's got a little out of hand.' "'A little?' "'Leopold, hush!' his wife chastised. She went to the bed and lifted Mortimer's jacket. "'Was he wearing this on the night of the party?' Mrs. Dixon shook her head. I made him change before the party. She joined Mrs. Longhorn at the bed. He was wearing this jacket here, these slacks, mustard cravat, undergarments, and, of course, his captain's hat. I did notice he was not wearing it to the party. Longhorn kicked a pile of trinkets. Good choice. At that moment, holding Mortimer's garments in her hands, Mrs. Dixon was flooded with realisation. Where does he keep his hat, then? Mrs. Longhorn wanted to know. Neville? "'Check the court rack for Mortimer's hat.' "'You told him to leave it upstairs,' Neville argued. "'The guard said Mortimer left with his hat anyway.' "'He was right, of course. "'Mrs. Dixon had explicitly said to Mortimer "'that he could not take his hat with him to the party "'and told him to leave it upstairs "'so as to prevent any sort of temptation "'upon seeing it throughout the night. 
and the guard at the shipyard had identified Mortimer by his hat. But the boy had been mistaken. Mrs. Dixon met the butler's eyes. What? Mrs. Longhorn looked from one to the other. You're not suggesting Lily Lou stole Mortimer's hat, are you? Mr. Longhorn hit the nail on the head. Yes, Mrs. Dixon's mind raised. Uh, yes, I am. But what would she want that dingy thing for? Mrs. Longhorn was befuddled. Neville, what did the boy at the dock say when you asked if Mortimer had boarded the Longhorn ship to Africa? He said that, and I quote... Neville lifted both hands to make the quotation gesture. A genteel young man boarded the ship. And what else did he say? Mrs. Dixon pressed. He said that the young man was wearing a captain's hat and that he boarded the ship accompanied by another man wearing a brown cloak. What are you two babbling about? Longhorn had had enough. Mrs. Dixon turned to the Longhorns, her expression ashen. Martima did not board your ship, sir. Mrs. Dixon's heart thudded in her chest. Why had she insisted upon getting Mortimer married? This was all her fault. Mr. Longhorn, Mrs. Dixon met the austere man's gaze intensely. Has your daughter ever expressed a desire to travel? Of course not, Mr. Longhorn lied. And then it was Mortimer's hat that the boy saw. This has nothing to do with my daughter. Mr. Longhorn turned to his wife. Come with me. We're going home. No. Mrs. Dixon grabbed the man's sleeve and spoke with urgency. It wasn't Mortimer that boarded the cruise to Africa that morning. Mrs. Dixon felt immensely sad. She put her free hand to her breast as she said the next words aloud. It was Lily Lou and Percy. Ridiculous, Longhorn said, shaking off her grasp. I have a list of passengers. Did you look at the list of names? Mrs. Dixon challenged. Mr. Longhorn hesitated. Um, it, it was not readily available. Leopold? It all fits into place, Mrs. Dixon barreled on. Lily Lou and Percy have run away together. We know because of the note they wrote on Martimer's special drawing paper. Percy could have used any paper, but something drew him upstairs, and in particular to Martimer's room. Martimer had left his captain's hat in there, and Percy knew that. Mrs. Dixon spoke more quickly as she went on. Neville's jaw dropped as the nanny's words sank in. Percy apprehended Martimer's captain's hat, and he used Martimer's ticket and went in his cousin's place, wearing Martimer's hat as a disguise. The boy said that Martimer was accompanied by a man in a cloak. Mrs. Dixon took a deep breath. Mr. Longhorn, I am absolutely certain that at this very moment your daughter is on a ship bound for an African safari. Lily Lou was the man in the cloak. At the finale of Mrs. Dixon's declaration, a loud crashing noise erupted from the doorway. Mrs. Dixon, Neville and Mr. Longhorn looked over just in time to see Mrs. Longhorn as she passed out and landed amongst a pile of intricately designed and handcrafted bottle boats. The crew broke into a cascade of cackles as they burst into action, preparing the ship for battle. To the bow we go! Came their desperate cries. Mortimer wished he were back in the ocean, sinking toward the foul sea floor. They jerked their prisoner forward with uncivilized glee. He'll be our figurehead! Ain't the figurehead supposed to be a mermaid or salmon? You daft ass! The first twisted over to thrust his fist into the other's face. He's our victory flag! She'll be easy to sink 
A load of loot she'd have aboard. We ain't gonna sink her, you idiot. If we did that, all the treasure'd be gone. Ah, then what are we gonna do? They arrived at the front of the boat with the prisoner. Mortimer saw the captain as he approached the helm, a cigar between his lips. The pirate ship moved alongside with her mistress. Across the moonlit sea, Mortimer spotted his shipmates scurrying about, wheeling cannons and readying with the weaponry at the starboard side. Tie him to the bowsprit! I'll stell you, wriggly blackguard! Mortimer wriggled violently. He had to do something to stop the villainous, degenerate, mephitic beasts from destroying her mistress. Rage burned in Mortimer's chest, and he jerked with all his might. Yet all of his shimmying, shaking, and writhing were no match for the grips of the pirates, who sang, laughed, and breathed with halitosis upon Mortimer's being. They quickly secured him to the wooden plank, and began wrapping rope around his midsection. Raise the white flag, and we'll kill you quickly! The sandpaper voice screamed across the deep blue. Never! came the reply from the Esquire. We'll rip and burn your jolly Roger! Ye boats no match for the devil's sanctum! Mortimer found himself dangling back over the ocean now. The rope had been wrapped around his belly over a dozen times. He felt like one of his sausages on a skewer over a flame. His captors laughed and jeered at him as they awaited the ships to ready their position for battle. Then their captain roared out the order to his crew. Drop the anchor! We'll hang ye by the gibbet! The threat sounded impotent in contrast to the menacing howl of the pirates heckling. Mortimer wrenched and kicked. He had to get free. The evening air picked up speed as the breeze chilled Mortimer's damp frame. His bountiful mound of hair blew about his face and his moustache trembled. Light the cannon! No! Mortimer shrieked above the banter. He could take it no more. I demand to speak to the captain first! The pirates about him laughed, their voices like a hundred deranged clowns. A yard or so across the way, Mortimer could see Sid and Cowlick on the deck, a look of shock across their faces. The pirate captain stormed across the deck toward him. Shall I put a bullet in his head? A hopeful miscreant asked as his captain walked past. The captain ignored the question and stopped at the bow rail near where Mortimer had been tied. His tobacco-stained lips curled up, but he did not address Mortimer, and instead he held out his hooked hand, gesturing toward his prize, and cried out across the sea, Will he shoot and kill your man? The crew of the Esquire began to protest and shout. Above the clamorous din, Mortimer heard Kilgrew's voice. Surrender, or meet your end. Drop your anchor. Me men will come aboard negotiated the captain. He truly hated to actually sink the magnificent ship. At every possible opportunity, he would commandeer a ship, as well as its generous booty. If ye agree, we'll let some of ye live, he lied. A pirate shall never board the Esquire. At this, the captain pulled his pistol from the pouch, armed it, and pointed it at Mortimer. He spoke loud enough for all to hear. What is ye last wish, then, ye treacherous bilge-sweller? Speak quickly before I put a hole in your skull. No! Kilgrew shouted. Then to his men, Drop the anchor! 
I have a trade! Mortimer tilted his chin with defiance. The captain narrowed one eye. What are ye saying, ye fat imbecile? I have something that might interest you, but I first demand to be released. Or I could just kill ye now and search ye dead remains after I sunk ye precious ship. The gun aimed precisely toward Mortimer's forehead. Unless it is not on my habitus. This intrigued the captain. The crew of both the ships held their collective breath, waiting for his decision. After what seemed an eternity, he lowered his gun. Untie him! Any false move and I'll kill him myself! The marauders jumped obediently into action. A few moments later, Mortimer was standing atop the deck of the pirate ship. He put his hands casually into his pocket, a jolt of relief filling his breast. What is it ye have? the captain demanded. I give you three seconds before I shoot ye. Mortimer clasped tin in his pocket. It was the tobacco tin from his ridiculous uncle's horrible tobacco farm. As far as Mortimer was concerned, everything that came from Jebediah Binkley's hand was an absolute monstrosity. With luck, the captain would be so horrified and sickened by Jebediah's tobacco that Mortimer would be able to escape. He revealed the tin. Bring it here. The captain's face blackened. A member of the pirate ship brigand yanked the tin from Mortimer's hands. Two others flanked his sides to prevent him from escaping. The captain lowered his weapon as the first brought him the tin of tobacco. Having only one hand, he could not open the tin, and so he belted out an order, and a pirate quickly opened it for him. Bring me a match and rolling papers, the captain growled. What is your name? Mortimer puffed out his chest, waiting for the captain to roll and light the cigarette and begin choking to death. Captain Mortimer Ascariot, he cried loud enough for all to hear. Mortimer did not see the shocked expressions of the crew aboard the Esquire upon hearing his true identity revealed. The captain visibly straightened his shoulders and grimaced deeply. Ascariot, ye say? The first mate lit a match and lifted it to the hand-rolled cigarette at his superior's lips. The captain inhaled and was engulfed in smoke. "'What if they know?' Mrs. Albright twisted the teacup between trembling fingers. "'Do sit down, darling,' said the blonde from the table. "'There must be a solution.' Well, "'What solution can there be?' Mrs. Albright's voice pitched. "'Sit down,' commanded her husband, "'and lower your voice.' Obediently, Mrs. Albright joined the two others at the table, but her fingers continued to move restlessly. Do you think they're still out there? No, and your yelling is giving me a headache. Mr. Albright rubbed a finger to his temple. The two of you need to calm down. Now, there's nothing to worry about. How do you explain the officer outside our window? There are two missing persons. They have upped the patrol. This has nothing to do with us. Mr. Albright spoke with more confidence than he felt inside. Those poor children, Mrs. Albright worried. Who could have done such a thing? What should our next move be? She spoke softly, bringing Mrs. Albright out of her musings about the missing Lily Lou Longhorn and Percy Alabaster Binkley. Mr. Albright took a drink from his cup of black coffee. Lay low and wait for the whole thing to blow over. I don't know how much longer I can stand to be locked up in this house, the blonde complained. That orange fellow was on to me, 
the trembling increased. I know that was him outside our house. Peter Orange is a complete nincompoop idiot, Mr. Albright declared. You need to get a hold of yourself. Tears welled up in his wife's eyes. Why are you being so heartless? You have all the luxury you could ever want. All those diamonds, dresses, perfumes, whatever you ask for, you get. You have nothing to complain about. The police are after me. Mrs. Albright slammed her palm against the table with emotion. That's worth complaining about. I've had enough of your paranoia. We're housing a fugitive. We're all on the lam, darling. His words struck her to the core. And you know it. Mr. Albright looked back and forth between the women. We're in this together. A noise came from the backyard. Mrs. Albright shut up, spilling her coffee. What was that? Her husband was at the kitchen counter and pulled a knife out of the block. What are you doing with that? His wife demanded, her voice shrill. The blonde sat silently watching. You two go upstairs. Just what are you going to do with the knife? Come on, darling, let's go upstairs, the blonde urged. She grabbed her friend's arm. But w w what if he's killed? Shut up and go upstairs, Mr. Albright snapped as he moved to the kitchen door and thrust his weapon toward the darkness outside. Mrs. Albright felt panic rising, but the blonde pulled her away. Before she could say anything more, they had passed swiftly down the hall, rounded the corner in the living room, and started up the stairs, away from her husband and the possible prowler in the backyard. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.